Well, we continue to be in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to a, a structural break, actually, in the book. To this point, up to chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus has been ministering primarily in Galilee and enjoying some success. But with verse 51 of chapter 9, Jesus sets his sight on Jerusalem and his coming death. And what follows is his journey uh, towards Jerusalem and along the way, increasing rejection of his claims. And it takes up about 40% of the gospel till we get to his ministry in Jerusalem itself. So again, we are in chapter 9, and we are going to pick it up with verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we enter into a time of meditation. Eternal God, your spirit inspired those who wrote the Bible. And it enlightens us to hear your word fresh each day. Help us to rely always on your promises in Scripture and for your spirit to be among us even now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has directly mentioned his coming death twice to his disciples. Both of those are in uh, chapter 9. And it is at least implied with Elijah and Moses when they discussed his coming exodus with Jesus at his transfiguration. That is implied at that, what that exodus is. But here in our passage this morning, Luke focuses our attention on it yet again. In the first part of verse 51, Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. And the idea is that Jesus was on a timetable and the clock was running. It's just like how Mark conveys Jesus' words after the arrest of John the Baptist and the beginning of his uh, ministry in Galilee. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the clock is running. Here we are. Let's get going. So the claim made by all four gospels and the New Testament at large is that the meaning of history is found in God working out his promise to Eve in Genesis 3 through Israel that her seed would crush the head of the serpent and in turn atone for the sins of humanity. So this is just not merely the history of some little nation on a rock in the middle of, you know, close to the Arabian desert or whatever. This is the history of the world as told through God's dealings with Israel. And Jesus is that seed, that unblemished son of the herd, the promised heir of David, the suffering servant of Isaiah. And the time was drawing near to when the promise made to Eve would be fulfilled. So what Luke has in mind with that phrase, taken up, is certainly in line with what has already been said, that Jesus would be delivered over uh, to the hands of men and would suffer and die. He would, as he called his disciples to do after him, he would take up his cross. But I think Luke also has in mind Jesus' resurrection, 
and his ascension into heaven as well. As I try to point out as often as I can, while Jesus' atonement for sins through his death is obviously of utmost importance, it is meaningless without his resurrection too. Those two things go together. They absolutely go together. Atonement for sins and the resurrection unto new, to new life. And this is exactly what Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus at his transfiguration. Because their lives, just like our lives, depended on this greater exodus that Jesus would bring about in Jerusalem. That Luke ends his gospel and really begins the book of Acts with Jesus being taken up into the throne room of God, we call this his ascension into heaven, is of monumental importance as well. For good reason, the Apostles' Creed hits the narrative points of Jesus' incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. The reason Jesus' ascension matters is not merely because it tells us where Jesus is. It tells us what he is currently doing and has been doing for the past 2,000 years. With his death and resurrection, Jesus received the authority to rule over all things in heaven and on earth from his Father. And this, this move signals a huge political change that affects both the heavens and the earth, that is, both the material and the spiritual realms of existence. And if you'll remember from Luke 4, in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan offered to give authority over all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus, if only Jesus would bow down to him. Satan actually says that the authority of these kingdoms has been delivered to him, and he could give it to whom he wanted. And I don't think that was a lie. Paul affirms this to some degree in places like Ephesians 2, where he refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of dis disobedience. Or again, in Ephesians 6, where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even though God has not and has never abandoned his creation at the fall and was still really ruling over all things, in some sense, Satan and the demons had real authority, both political and spiritual. And those two things often go together. Like what you see in Egypt in the Exodus, it is not merely Pharaoh. That is a spiritual war that's being fought through Pharaoh. So these two things often go together. There's real political and spiritual authority over this world. And by Jesus' ascension, a real political shift happened in the heavens and the earth. And if you consider, for example, Genesis 3 and 4, it is clear both with Adam and then with his next generation, the next generation with his son Cain, that humanity was intended to rule over spiritual beings. After all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are to judge angels. In fact, he just kind of says it as an aside. But they had failed, that is, Adam and again Cain, had failed to rule over them and in turn had ceded authority over to Satan, at least in some manner. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, both atones 
for our sins and conquers death, and in turn, he restores to humanity our privileged place of rule that was lost in Genesis 3. I think this is why in the Gospels, demons seem to be everywhere. They are warring against God's people because they know the true Adam will soon defeat them. And like we saw with with the Legion episode, if you remember from a month or so ago, they say as much. They know that they will be defeated in the end. So even as Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, which means he is Lord over every being, he shares that rule with his people. And he gives us back the dignity of being the images of God who has put all things under our feet. Now that's not to say, as Paul points out, that spiritual evil is not still at work warring against God's kingdom. Clearly it is. It's rather that their power over the world, like death itself, has been broken. And the true king is taking back all things. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that later on when we get to chapter 17. Even so, Jesus knew that the way to the throne was not a bloodless path as Satan tried to offer him, which is, by the way, the way all kings often try to take power for themselves. They will gladly sacrifice someone else for them to have power. No, Jesus knew the way to the throne went straight to the heart of the temple and the giving of his life as the better Passover lamb. So in short, the kingdom of God comes through his suffering. Now, in the same verse, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the meaning of this phrase, I think, is found a few verses later in chapter 9, verse 62, when Jesus says to someone who, who had offered to follow him and said, I, I, I want to follow you wherever you go, but wanted to tell his family or whoever goodbye, Jesus says, no, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And when Luke says Jesus set his face, it does not mean either that Jesus set his face against Jerusalem, as in to bring wrath against it, or that Jesus set his face for Jerusalem, as in to bring mercy to it. No, rather, his face was set to endure what was to come. He had set his hand to the plow and was not looking back, which is yet another indication that Jesus was well aware of who he is and what he was there to do, and nothing was going to distract him from that purpose, which is what we see starting to happen in the the verses right after our passage today. In short, Jesus would not be distracted from this purpose to come and die. He knows who he is. And for this kingdom to come, for there to be life, he must die. And he is set on doing it. Now, the language that Luke uses ties into the prophet Ezekiel, in fact, from Ezekiel 3, where God says to Ezekiel, Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads, like emery, harder than flint, have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. So God made Ezekiel's face hard, so that he would be able to endure the rejection of God's people who were dead set against him. It is a hard thing to do to get up and say the word of God and to be totally rejected, if not jeered for it. That was Ezekiel's 
calling. So too, Jesus, his face is hard knowing that he will be far more severely rejected and in turn humiliated and tortured and killed by his own people. And the phrase also ties into Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 7, where God's suffering servant says, The Lord God has opened my ear. Again, the people of God are people who listen to their Lord. That's the suffering serpent. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. If you listen to that imagery, everything to the pulling out of the beard, it's intense, right? The suffering servant, though, unlike God's people, listens to the word of God and does not rebel against it. Because of this, he willingly endures shame and humiliation. And like Ezekiel, he sets his face like flints, like a hard rock that cannot be dulled, because he trusts that God will raise him from the dead. Again, verse 51, then, is, it's a key moment. It's a key moment in the movement of the gospel as Jesus now sets out for Jerusalem, his face hardened, ready to endure what is to come, trusting in his Father, prepared to face rejection and humiliation, and that rejection would start in the very next town. Well, in verse 52, we read that Jesus sent ahead messengers. Really, they function like ambassadors, and we've seen him do this before with the disciples. And they came to a Samaritan village to make preparations for his arrival. And you have to keep in mind, this is not just Jesus and the Twelve, but at this point, a great crowd of people who are following him. And the details of the verse resonate with the first part of chapter 9, where Jesus sent out the disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal diseases and cast out demons, all signs that the kingdom of God have arrived. And if you remember, reception and rejection of the disciples in Jesus' name was a key issue. And for those places that accepted the disciples, it meant that they accepted the word about the Messiah. For those towns that rejected the disciples and their preaching, the disciples were to shake off the dust from their sandals as a sign of God's coming judgment on that place. Now remember, dust is a symbol for death, and it has been since Genesis 3, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And by shaking the dust off their feet, it was a symbol indicating that the town that rejected Jesus walked in death. They had death on them. It's why Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper is not merely the behavior of a servant, but the symbolic washing of death off of his disciples. That is, though through Jesus' atonement, his disciples, they would then be able to walk in the way of life. Now, the straightest way from Galilee to Jerusalem involved going through Samaria, though Jews would sometimes go well around the region so as to avoid the Samaritans altogether. And the reason for this goes all the way back to the divided kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south, the conquering of Israel by the Assyrians, and then the false worship and the blended people that took up residence in Israel or that area of Samaria 
in the years after that. So this tension is not new. This tension goes back hundreds of years. And the hatred, well, it went both ways. It wasn't just that Jews hated Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews too. And it was just as much a religious hatred as it was an ethnic one. So that Jesus chose to take the shorter route through Samaria is not merely pragmatic. If you've noticed anything about his, his ministry in Galilee, there's nothing pragmatic about it. No, it's intentional. It's intentional because of his desire to redeem the whole world. So consider Jesus' final words before his ascension, before he took the throne in Acts chapter 1. He says this, well, first, his disciples ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So just an aside about the times we're living in and the junk that you will find on the internet. If you find any Christians telling you it is clear it is the end of the world, point them to Acts chapter 1. Because Jesus says, I'm not telling and it's not for you to know, so pipe down. Keep going. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, which leads to Daniel 7. Go read it today. That's the next scene is Daniel 7 in Revelation 4. Though Samaria was clearly, though, alienated from God, and you see that in our passage, and hostile in their minds against God, still Jesus desired, before he took the throne even, to reconcile Samaria to himself through his death. And with verse 53, we can assume part of the, the Samaritan rejection of the Jewish messengers was at the very least cultural. But the reason Luke gives is not because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It's a repetition of what he's already said in verse 51. Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem. So on the one hand, the Samaritans rivaled the Jews and argued that Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, was the proper place for worship. The woman at the well in John 4 expresses almost exactly the same thought to Jesus. So perhaps the Samaritans were offended by Jesus' choice to keep going to Jerusalem. But on the other hand, in light of what we have just said about Jesus setting his face, it seems clear that while Jesus had enjoyed a good reception in Galilee and had a, a large following at this point, once he started towards Jerusalem, rejection of him would build, starting with this small village in Samaria, moving through Judea, and culminating in the crowds calling for his crucifixion in Jerusalem. So what's fascinating is that at his ascension, Jesus, with his last words to his disciples, reverses the pattern of rejection, building his kingdom first in Jerusalem, at that very place where he was rejected, then Judea as it starts to move out, then Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. Well, in verse 54, we read that when James and John, again, two pillars of Jesus' future church, who were also brothers, heard about this rejection of Jesus. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? There are at least two callbacks uh, to the Old Testament in their question. And the obvious first is in Genesis 19, 
and God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So in other words, they think this village, by rejecting the Messiah, is just as wicked as Sodom. And after all, at the root of Sodom's notorious treatment or attempted treatment of the two angels, well, it was the lack of hospitality. The second is found with Elijah in at least two uh, different stories that happened with two kings in succession, both of which happened in Samaria. The first is in 1 Kings 18 and the confrontation between King Ahab and Elijah over worship of the true God versus the worship of Baal. The test was centered on two bulls, really one for the prophets of Baal and one for Elijah. Whoever's God sent fire from heaven to consume the offering was the true God. Elijah just set up the test. Let's just put it. Whoever's God sends fire from heaven, there you go. That's the true God. And if you know the story, the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, they chanted, they cried aloud, they cut themselves with swords and lances until, as the text says, blood gushed out of them. I have no idea what that means. In my mind, I always kind of imagine like they're just slightly cutting. I think this was gruesome, what was happening. Meanwhile, Elijah sits by sarcastically taunting them, saying things like, hey, maybe Baal is just off musing on things, thinking things over, or he's relieving himself, or he's, he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Maybe he should go a little bit louder. And of course, Baal did not respond to his prophets. Elijah, in turn, didn't just make an altar and prepare a bull for it. He made an altar to the Lord, complete with 12 stones, representing a unified Israel, which I think in itself is looking forward to what the Messiah would do in unifying Israel. And he dug deep trenches around the altar, then had the whole thing doused with gallons upon gallons of water multiple times so that the trenches were filled to the brim. And then this is what he prays. Listen to this. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. Well, God answered Elijah's prayer, and he rained fire from heaven such that every last bit of that altar was consumed. And afterwards, Elijah rounded up the prophets of Baal, took them down to the Kishron brook, and he slaughtered them. Now, the next story, the second story, uh, is in 2 Kings 1, where King Ahasuerus, the successor to King Ahab in Samaria, refused to seek out the word of God, and in turn did not merely reject Elijah's word to the king, which he sent to the king, but in response decided to try and lay hands on Elijah by way of a company of 50 soldiers. And when Elijah saw the soldiers uh, coming, he said to the captain, Listen, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them all. This happens a second time. The third captain was a bit more humble and feared for his life, and, and rightly so. So in other words, John and James, they see themselves in a similar, similar role as, as Elijah, and they see Jesus as God, which good, that's right. And in turn, they are offended by the Samaritans' rejection of the true God, just as Elijah was. In turn, John and James think the Samaritans deserved the same judgment. The same judgment of fire. After all, there's little difference 
between pagans in Sodom who worship other gods and Israelites who openly reject the true God like you see Elijah doing with Ahab, though arguably the Israelites were far worse. We get a hint of why James and John might view themselves in this way. And this is a bold way to view yourself, if you, if you can't guess, why they, they view themselves akin to Elijah from their request in Matthew 20, a request that came from their mother, no less. They come to Jesus, both boys, or young men, really, with their mother uh, uh, doing the speaking. And they come and they ask, or she asks, that, that when Jesus comes into his kingdom, they be given seats of honor and authority on his right and left hand. This is so bold. I, I can't even imagine asking it, but, but here they do. They, they ask this very thing. And in response, Jesus asked them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? That is the cup of wrath? And they said, yeah, we are. It's just another indication that the disciples were thoroughly confused over what Jesus was intending to do in Jerusalem and how really like much of the Jewish world at that time, their hope was that the Messiah would conquer Israel's enemies like Elijah slaughtered the prophets of Baal. So while James and John clearly have faith in Jesus, they do, and rightly, they're rightly offended over his rejection, they miss what Jesus is after. Well, verse 55 says that Jesus turned and rebuked them. And previously, Jesus has rebuked fevers and storms, uh, demons. And in Matthew 16's version of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus rebuked Peter. After that incredible confession, he rebuked Peter for rejecting Jesus' teaching that he would soon die at the hands of the Jewish leadership. So here... Jesus rebukes James and John for wanting to destroy the Samaritans in his name. I think it is safe to assume that this is the sort of role they probably imagined when they had their mom ask Jesus for seats of authority next to him. Now remember, early in chapter 9, the towns that rejected the gospel of the kingdom were symbolically marked for judgment. Perhaps that's why they're thinking this. They were symbolically marked for judgment by the disciples, shaking the dust off their feet. And so it seems as though maybe James and John had mistakenly thought that it was a final judgment. Those towns had one shot, one shot only, and they had chosen poorly. But what's in view in the early part of chapter 9 is what theologians call the eschatological judgment, that is, the final judgment. There's no doubt that Jesus is a judge and that he brings judgment, and Israel herself uh, would be judged for her rejection of the Messiah, and that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, in fulfillment of Jesus' words of warning. Even then, God's people were given 40 years. Think about that. 40 years to repent of their rejection of the Messiah as opposed to the 40 days of Nineveh, which tells you something of the nature of our God. He is patient, and he longs for people to turn to him and find life. So even as this Samaritan town initially rejected Jesus, he would later command his disciples to bring this same word of the kingdom back to Samaria, which is what they did. So by the time we get to Acts chapter 9, you know, eight chapters after 
Jesus commanded them to be his eyewitnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, very ends of the earth. We read, So the church, that is the one that began in Jerusalem, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So considering the hatred felt between Samaritans and Jews, something that John and James, I think, clearly felt, this is a remarkable statement. If you were to continue through the book of Acts, through the ministry of Paul, the gospel continues out to the very ends of the earth, just as Jesus commanded. That's how they understood that happening. With James and John missed, though, with God sending fire from heaven on places like Sodom, is how long how long-suffering God was prior to sending it. A long time. And in the case of the events on Mount Carmel, the reason Elijah asked for fire was so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So to be sure, there will be a final judgment. This is often missed in gospel preaching, or it's highlighted way too much. But there will be a final judgment. But our calling together right now as as the people of God is not a calling of the sword. We do not call down fire from heaven or ask for it as the church tries to enforce God's law by force. The church has made that mistake numerous times over its history. No, as the people of God, our calling is to declare the mercy of God and to minister it. We do that in word and sacrament. Now, that does not mean we shirk away from telling the truth. John the Baptist died for calling out the sexual perversions of King Herod. The word of truth is far more devastating, however, than a sword. The word of God changes things far more than any sword can. That means we are to declare the whole counsel of God that centers on the forgiveness of sins and the promise of resurrection, even as it includes the reality and the sometimes hard discussion That if people will not receive God's offer of life, as a simple matter of consequence, they have chosen life on their own terms. They've chosen to walk in the dust. They want to do it, which is death. And as Jesus, by his own actions, makes clear, we should not grow tired of hearing this gospel ourselves, let alone offering it even to people who initially reject it. That is our calling, a sometimes frustrating calling, a sometimes a calling that we think is making no difference in the world, let alone in Butler County or maybe even in our own homes. But God is faithful. And as long as someone draws breath with our God, there is hope because our God loves to redeem. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, You have promised to bring judgment through your Son, even as you have shown just how long-suffering you are and how much you desire for people to turn to you and find life. It is just as we began this service with the words from Dane Ortland that every time you see sin and suffering in the Gospels, you see Jesus leaning in, that he wants to be near, that he wants to atone. He wants to sanctify. He wants to make a person whole. So Lord, we pray 
that you would continue to do that in this church, in our very homes, that you would do this in Butler County, Montgomery, all of Alabama to the very ends of the earth, we pray. We pray this in the great Redeemer's name, Jesus.